If you do have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Psalm 97, which will supply our text for this morning. Back in 1961, A.W. Tozer, that eloquent Christian Missionary Alliance uh, uh, pastor and writer, he wrote his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And in it, Tozer wrote these, uh, I continue to believe to be very profound words. He writes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no, no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. And I might just apply their vision of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. And for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. The the Bible has far more insight into the nature of the human spirit than does uh, the modern world. The ancient prophets understood that humanity will tend to become like the God uh, which we worship. And so if our gods are merely deaf, blind, and dumb like the idols, well, so too we become blind, deaf, and dumb, spiritually speaking. But if our God is all-wise, if he is the king with nobility and power, he's the one who's created the universe in all its beauty and grandeur, if God is good and holy and righteous and just, so too will those become who worship this God. And so today, as we look at the psalm, it's this great psalm that just highlights the majesty and the glory of God, and it just leads us then uh, into that the, the application, which is worship, which is rejoicing and thanksgiving. Would you stand for the reading of Psalm 97? The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt with like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Would you pray with me?
Lord Most High, we, we come now before your throne, seeking your blessing upon us as your word is read, preached, and heard. May you cause the light and beauty of your truth to shine forth in our hearts and open the eyes of our understanding that we may better comprehend your glory and majesty. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. One of the first thoughts that immediately leaps from the page, that immediately leaps from verse 1, is that God's sovereignty is not, it's not a depressing thought. It's not meant to be a depressing thought. You know, if, if we talk about the sovereignty of God in general terms, saying, you know, like we like to say, that he has the whole world in his hands, there's no problem. Christians universally will rise up and say, amen. But if we begin to ask questions like, is God sovereign or in control over planes that fall from the sky? Or car accidents that kill innocent people or or terrorists, or pandemics, or natural disaster, which destroy tens of thousands. And then many Christians hesitate. Or when we say that God is sovereign over salvation, that it is that God ultimately decides who will be the recipients of saving grace, we hesitate and we say that can't be right. It seems to cast a shadow over God, and so we conclude that all these kinds of discussions will only lead to confusion and trouble. But notice the psalmist. Uh, The psalm does not mumble. It it, it doesn't hesitate. The Lord reigns. He sits on his throne. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases, Psalm 115. Nothing can get in the way of uh, the eternal abiding happiness of God because he reigns. And we know that all things work for the good of those who love God. Well, why? Because the Lord reigns, and this brings joy to the the earth. The psalmist says, even the islands stretched out in the seas are to be glad. They're to shout about this this reality that the Lord sits on his throne. And if you think about it, there, there really is no comfort in believing that things happen outside the divine purview of God, outside of his control. There's no solace in believing that sometimes bad things happen and people die and there was no reason for it. But if God is in control, well, then I can know that there is a why at least. I may not know what the why is. He doesn't, you know, feel the necessity of of confiding in me for every decision that he makes. But we can trust that the all-wise God has a why, that there is a reason, that there is a purpose. And those who meditate and embrace the God who reigns over all things have a solid foundation beneath their feet. Again, they may not know why bad things happen, but they know there is a why. They know that there is purpose. They know that there is meaning in all of life. And since the God we worship reigns, he is the great and awesome God, worthy of our greatest praise. And so far from being dismal and gray, it is the sovereignty of God that makes us shout and leap um, for joy. Because God reigns, we rejoice. 
we can be glad, as the psalmist writes. Now, what kind of God, the psalmist continues, what kind of God is it that reigns? And so in the following verses, the psalmist draws an unmistakable picture. He, He creates this vision of God. And here he continues immediately to um, describe the majesty of God that is on display. Verses 2 through um, 5. The God who reigns is not simply a bigger version of us. He's not just a bigger version of, you know, uh, I who's in the sky. Uh, no, the, the psalmist's vision of God is a vision that makes me, it, it, it's not necessarily a vision that makes me feel good or comfortable regardless of how I may be living. And so for this reason, um, the vision that is drawn here has sharp edges. The vision that's drawn here is not necessarily the vision that fallen man would naturally want to create. This is not a God in our own image. Clouds and darkness are associated with this God. He is righteous and just. That is, he's perfectly, he's brilliantly holy. And for this reason, fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. You never know when this God breaks out against evildoers, destroying whole families, communities, cities, and even nations. The cloud is not only dark, but lightning radiates and illuminates the sky and earth below. When the Lord is um, present in his power, Not even the mountains made of granite will be able to stand. Even the mountains, the psalmist says, will melt before him. And by this, we are meant to understand that the God we worship is not, you know, it's not an emoji. It's not the smiley face looking down over us in the sky. God causes the earth to tremble. Now, one of the great illustrations, and I've used this before, but it's been a few years, so I feel like I can do it again, is it's from, it's C.S. Lewis, so you get a pass on C.S. Lewis. And this is from The Silver Chair. Um, many of you are familiar uh, with that book, and, and, it, and it's a story of, um, well, uh, several main characters, and one of those is Jill, who's a little girl, and, and she's made her way into Narnia with a boy uh, by the name of Eustace Scrub. Yeah, lovely name. Shortly after arriving for the first time, Jill finds herself in these, this, the woods, and she finds that she just has this kind of unquenchable thirst. She, she just has this overpowering um, uh, thirst. And she comes to this open glade, and in the glade, there's a stream, and it's, it's like, it's clear, it's bright, it, it's described as being like glass, and, and it just sparkles. And, and, and you're meant to think, oh, here's this perfect spring of water to satisfy this deep thirst that this uh, girl, Jill, has. But unfortunately, there is a problem. Well, the problem is there's this mighty lion standing right next to the stream. And of course, we know who the lion is. Um, this is the great Aslan of uh, the Chronicles of, of Narnia. He is glorious. And so the lion sees Jill, 
And they have the following conversation that takes place. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat little girls? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Now, ultimately, Jill, if you're wondering how this is a story, she gets her water. Her thirst is quenched. But what C.S. Lewis is doing here is he's, he's giving us this picture of God in the, in the form of, you know, this lion. And what he's wanting to communicate is like this lion, the living God, the true God, the, the God of Psalm 97. He is not a tame lion. Oh, he loves, and he provides, and he is strong and compassionate, but he is not tame. This is the God that we worship, and he invites us into his presence so that we come with confidence and joy, but also with reverence and fear. You know, you've seen those high-voltage sites? You know, do not come near. We are in a high voltage site when we come into the presence of God. In verse 6, we're, we're given in another aspect of his majesty, and that is he is the creator of the world. For the psalmist writes, the heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. The creation preaches about God, and it preaches well. It is an extraordinary occurrence that there are those who have degrees, who have studied the creation, who have studied astronomy, who have studied the living body, who have studied biology and botany, and they still fail to see the creator who stands behind the design and the beauty of this creation. Instead, replacing God very often with some combination of blind chance plus time. Blind chance is nothing. No directive power, whatever. And how is that possible? How is it possible that scientists and educators can see the beauty, they can see the complexity in its detail, and still say that it all arose on its own out of chaos. 
How can they observe all the different variations of botanical and biological life and conclude that all this came just from the, ma- the random mixing of, of lifeless materials? Life can only come from life. And they know the universe had a beginning, and yet they refuse to investigate what could have been before that beginning. They look at the astronomical variables necessary for a planet like the Earth to sustain life, and they conclude we hit the lottery. Though the odds of the world as we know it are for all practical purposes beyond possibility. And then some of these same individuals treat Christians as if they're the ones who hate science, (laughs) who are irrational, unreasonable, and cannot think in a straight line. And yet, we are not the ones with the three eyes in the middle of our forehead, you know, the way they sometimes look at us. Those who deny the possibility of a creator are the ones guilty of intellectual dishonesty. They're guilty of negligent disbelief. How how can you look at the design? How can you see and appreciate something like beauty? How can you reckon with the issues of morality? How do you deal with this hunger for the eternal, for meaning, for purpose? How do you understand the complexity that we see as far in the, the the stars and the universe down to the molecules, the design that we see. You know, it's like you're walking along the beach and you spy something that's gold and you pick it up and, and um, well, it's got a strap that seems to fit well on your wrist. And on it are these, these, these hands that seem to be ticking. <laughs> and there are these symbols and, and uh, that we would recognize as numbers. And, and then you look on the back, and it's, there's something that looks engraved in a very specific kind of way. And you realize, oh, Rolex. Well, no one picks up a watch and, and just says, well, look what time plus chance over you know, millennia has created. And compared to a Rolex watch, how much, I mean, just blindingly beyond complex is the human brain. The the complexity and the design of the cells, of the amount, the billions of pieces of information stored in our DNA. And you say, oh, well, look what just happened by chance. And ultimately, that's what you must say. We as Christians, we do not need to back down on this issue. The heavens preach the glory of God, and we are standing with a royal flush, and we too easily get bluffed by those who are holding a pair of twos, usually because they have a degree (laughs) next to their name. Well, the glory that the heavens do declare the glory of the Lord. And again, there is nothing within our universe that explains our universe. There's nothing, our, our universe is winding down. We know that it had a beginning. There's nothing within it that explains it. But moving on. Given that the God of majesty reigns, there are important implications that flow out of this. And one of the implications of this is Uh, the contrast between false and true worship. 
There have always been those who have rejected the true God in favor of some other object of worship. This is verses 7 through 9. He writes, All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. There's the contrast. So worship him, all you gods. And Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. You, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Even though this is written to the covenant community, they need to be reminded that those who worship images, those who trust in idols, will be disgraced. They will be defeated. They'll ultimately be put to shame. You worship the wrong God, and bad things inevitably happen. Um, And it may not necessarily be in this life, but certainly in the, the life to come. But usually it is in this life, because we become like the gods we worship. God will not share his glory with any other. He is a jealous God. He goes to war against the idols, whether they be in the form of money or relationships or some illicit pleasure. We should work hard to increase our understanding and our knowledge of who God is biblically. You know, there are still many Christians who, um, you know, whether they attend church or not, their view of God, as surveys demonstrate, continues to be, you know, a, a kind of a mixture of either a God who kind of created the world, but then just draws back and is not really desiring to be involved in our daily lives, who's not really involved in the world. Um, this is that kind of deistic view of God. But then on the other side is when you need God, it's, you know, like this, this heavenly ATM, you know, um, when I get into a pinch, I, I go to the God who can hopefully deliver the blessings, who can deliver the goods, who can answer, get me out of the jam or out of the emergency. But this is very far away from the, psalm, the God that the psalmist describes. And this is important, for the God we worship will affect our view of ourselves. It'll affect our own attitudes. It'll affect the rest of our lives, Monday through Saturday. God doesn't have to do anything to bring the worshiper of false gods to shame. He just leaves them to themselves, and what they worship will have tragic results on how they live out the rest of their lives. We are incurably religious. We will worship something. that We long for something that's outside of us, that is bigger than us, that is transcendent, that gives to us meaning and purpose. The worship of a great God creates and fashions strong and noble people. And so when we bow down before a majestic God, this will allow us to stand up straight in the world. To humble ourselves and to exalt the greatness of God will lead to us standing undaunted, as the psalmist says, before kings and before the princes of the earth. Zion and the daughters of Judah, which... You know, I just take as the the church of God. Um, They hear the message that God reigns, and they rejoice. When we get our worship right, it should produce in us more and more of the character of God. And so for this reason, one of the ways this works itself out is in verse 10. We're told that those who love God 
should hate evil. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. It's just that simple. We need to learn to draw the lines the way God draws them. God gets to determine what is good and what is evil. And the way we learn what is good and evil is we come to his word, as we draw near to the living God uh, through the word of God. And in the pursuit of hating what God hates, we do need to stand guard against self-righteousness. That is somehow, you know, (laughs) I stand on I, not being guilty of anything wrong myself, of course, but very capable of addressing the sins of thou (laughs) or of those outside um, uh, in the surrounding culture. Now, it should be obvious, but if we are to hate what is evil, it is necessary that we begin with ourselves. We have to first stop practicing what is evil. That should be just straightforward. That's, you know, that's connecting the dots To be faithful to the Lord means we hate evil. You can't hate evil and continue to participate in it. This is inconsistent. This is evil. So if there is evil, some particular form of worldliness or idolatry in your own lives, are you continuing to toy with that? Or will you hear God speak and say, renounce the evil in your own lives, in your own hearts. When we learn to stand against evil, the psalmist addresses us that it may bring about uh, the anger, the mocking, even the wrath of the world. But know that God pledges to preserve the lives of his saints, delivering them from the hands of the wicked. The majestic God himself will take up our cause. And therefore, the psalmist encourages us, to be bold, to be unafraid because of the God we worship, because the Lord reigns. And then the fruit of worship is, we're just ending in verses 11 and 12, where we started. What is one way to discern the kind of worship that pleases God? Well, verse 11, light is sown for the righteous. Now that's an interesting phrase. Light is sown for the righteous. What does he mean? Well, he continues, and, and this is what I would take as parallelism. This is he, the, the, the author's sort of defining what he means here. And so he continues, and joy for the upright in heart. When we get our worship right, light is sown. What does that mean? That joy is being planted in the hearts of the worshipers of the true and living God. Where, where light is sown, blessing is planted. And where true worship is taking place, it should not result in people merely going through the motions or simply doing their Christian duty. It should result in rejoicing and thanksgiving in the glory of God's holy name. If we don't get worship right, it will lead to us being just as busy and active as ever, but without the blessing of God. It will burn up. All our activity will burn up like like straw, wood, and uh, stubble, as uh, the Apostle Paul describes. 
You know, in terms of the elders have been talking about vision and mission for the church and, and, and how, you know, where's the Lord calling us in terms of our commitment to our immediate community, but also our commitment to wherever the church is. The church is the people. And so wherever the people are, that's where the church is. And, and as we work through, you know, how do we reach the horizons that God has called us to reach? It's very tempting to, you know, put um, uh, your trust in strategies or to put your trust in methods. But what Psalm 97 is saying is if you get worship wrong, you can do, you can have the best strategies, the best methods, but apart from the blessing of God, it'll all um, be futile. It, it, it won't amount to much. We'll be going 100 miles a minute, possibly in the wrong direction altogether. But if we continue to cultivate a high view of God, it will inform our worship. It'll set our sights on Jesus and his nature. And when we have a high view of God and seek to do what he tells us, and the way he tells us, it produces blessing. It produces gladness and joy. Now, part of this won't make sense at first. You're like, how do these dots connect? And this is where we trust the word of God. We get our worship right. It leads to blessing. Worship must have priority over everything else. Get it wrong and everything's compromised. Get it right and suddenly the world begins to take notice and sit upright. Get it right and the world may even start to panic a bit as the message of God's absolute sovereignty begins to work its way out in the lives of God's people. Well, this is probably a good place to, to close, and so would you just pray with me? Almighty God, as we prepare to leave and as we enter into this time of communion, we do pray, Lord, that you would grant greater grace, that we would be wholly consecrated to you, place in us a hunger and thirst for righteousness, a desire to conduct ourselves with integrity, and purity and honor as we seek to be faithful to Jesus Christ, our Lord, in every area of our lives. Lord, as we make our way through this world as strangers in it, grant us great assurance of the hope that has been placed within us by your Spirit until one day we are gathered together with our spiritual fathers and mothers in your glorious presence. And so, Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.